Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we are excited to be connecting you to people in and stories about and related to Israel and give you a window to look through about aspects of life here in Israel that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions, comments about any topic, anytime. Or feel free to connect with us at genesis123.co. Also, please feel free to share this with people who you know who will find it of interest as well. This is a very special episode, and I pray that you will excuse the technical issues and derive all of the great inspiration and content that you are about to hear. I am really thrilled today to host a special guest who is going to share something that's important, very personal to me, and we'll talk about that, and I think relevant to people at many times in their lives that hopefully this podcast will get around more than just the one time that it's being broadcast. I'm thrilled to introduce Dr. Ben Korn, who is who has a 70-page CV that I have to admit, uh, full disclosure, I did not read all of, but I glanced at the unbelievable number of publications and credits and, and conferences and, and professional achievements. And it's hard not to be overwhelmed in a, in a really positive way. Dr. Korn was raised and educated, born, raised, and educated in the United States. He immigrated to Israel in 1987 and is married with four daughters. Um, pro, uh, he is a professor of oncology at Hebrew University in Jerusalem and the deputy director at Sharet Tzedek Hospital also here in Jerusalem. Uh, Dr. Korn, welcome. Uh, I think I mentioned to you that this is a unique uh, topic for me when I first read about you recently, um, because this week, 25 years ago, is the anniversary of my father's death. He had uh, pancreatic cancer. And so I've taken the liberty, our, our regular listeners know that we have sponsors for each episode. I'm taking the liberty of, of being the sponsor of this of this episode in memory of my father. But I understand this is also personal for you in the sense that your father had cancer and that triggered you as a uh, teenager yourself uh, on the journey that you're on. Can you tell us about your father and, and, uh, and, and how his death led to your being who you are today? Well, thank you very much for that generous introduction. I hope you can hear me. I'm actually driving down the Mediterranean coast from Caesarea towards uh, the town of Ashdod, uh, where I'm going to be seeing patients today. I'm an oncologist, a physician with expertise in cancer medicine. And I first became interested in taking care of patients with malignant disease when I was a child of 11. Uh, there was a very difficult situation. My dad had advanced prostate cancer. He was treated in the best uh, facility in the United States, uh, in New York. I don't want to mention any names, but many can figure it out. And um, my parents, so loving, decided that they didn't want to violate the innocence of their children. So they really didn't share the uh, disease uh, and its ramifications with myself, my older brother, and my younger sister. And it wasn't until the holiday of Passover where we were called in and told that all those business trips that uh, Daddy was on were actually admissions to the hospital, and we were going to see him. Uh, and we went up to his room, and uh, my dad, who was really buff, as you might say today, he was on the boxing team and the track team uh, at his college, was just a shadow of himself, and it was clear that something was going on. Um, we kind of said goodbye to him there, uh, but later, uh, the next day, when the seventh day of Passover 
were also a holiday was beginning, right after my mom lit the candles, the phone rang. And even though this was an Orthodox Jewish home, we answered the phone. And the young physician on the other end said, Mrs. Korn, I'm sorry to inform you, but your husband has expired. Oh. And this was really very traumatic. Uh, even though my mother knew this was coming, she sort of dropped the phone and we had to uh, embrace her. And, uh, you know, to use a term like that, which is sort of a term you would use for cottage cheese that no longer can be eaten, was just surreal. And it made me realize there was a problem with the medical system. I thought the problem was they couldn't cure uh, prostate cancer. And I went to medical school about six, seven years later, thinking that's what I was going to do. And when I got to medical school, my very first case on the ward was a situation where I saw a very similar uh, interaction between my senior physician who had to speak to a patient and just said something really gruff, like you have bone mets, uh, we're going to treat you with radiation, we'll set you up tomorrow. And then we left the room. And I realized at that moment that my mission was not to cure prostate cancer. My mission was to somehow, somehow help with this uh, gap in communication between providers, patients, and families. And with time, I realized, and maybe we'll talk about this, that the key was to understand the meaning of hopefulness. Yeah, so I definitely wanted uh, to, to, to speak about that because that's what where I read about you in an article in the Jerusalem Post. And, and, and that's that it's incredible and, and a lot to share. Uh, also, just on a really personal note, it's uh, first of all, I, I, I can only imagine being a child and not knowing what's going on. That's very difficult. Um, but also when my father died, um, it was during the holidays, uh, during the month of Tishrei, when we go from Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot. And I remember vividly 25 years ago, um, every every holiday that my wife lit the candles, also in an Orthodox home. So for our Christian listeners, they, uh, people may not know, that means you're offline for 24, 48, in some cases, even uh, even 72 hours, um, I was so scared that I, I wouldn't know that, that he died uh, somehow. Um, but before we talk about hope, um, we're, we're broadcasting a podcast from Israel about unique uh, aspects of life in Israel. What brought you to Israel? Why in 1987 did you and your wife and, uh, decide to pack up and bring your, your, your four daughters here? Right. Um, tiny, tiny correction. It was actually 1997. But oh, sorry. No, no, no problem. Uh, we were um, enjoying the good life in suburban Philadelphia. Um, really, uh, uh, it was fun. Uh, and uh, we had great friends, great opportunities professionally, both myself and my wife. And uh, we were really driven by idealism. Uh, I would have to say that uh, it wasn't a story of uh, anti-Semitism that was driving us out. There was not a push. There was a pull to be part of the miracle of Zion. Um, I feel very fortunate. My sense is, even though I don't know you well, that you do too, that we're living in a unique period where after a couple of millennia without a homeland, we have this opportunity uh, to be uh, in Israel and to build this state uh, and as much as, by the way, I love America, and uh, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by American exceptionalism, and, and, and very grateful for the training I had and the friends that I made, I would also say that there's something very special. There's an electricity in the air uh, in Israel. Uh, you know you're part of something larger. You feel connected. Uh, if I can say just one, one thing very, very quickly, because yeah. you mentioned we're in the period as we record now of the high holidays. Uh, these are often called the days of awe. Yes. And there's some research, which I think connects to hope, but I'll just I'll mention here about what we mean by awe. It's not a very common word that we pay attention to in the English language. I think it's partly because uh, people of my age sort of uh, diluted the meaning of the word when we use the adjective awesome. Yes. Uh, you know, everything is awesome. And because everything is awesome, really nothing is awesome. But awe is this sense of grandeur that exists that on the one hand makes me feel smaller, but not in a sense that I'm diminished, makes me feel smaller to understand the vastness, the greatness of the world, 
And my response in a state of awe is to connect to others. And I think that's very much the experience in Israel. I am in awe, not just now because we're in this month of Tishrei, the autumnal Jewish holidays. I am in awe of the goings on in the state of Israel. Well, I, I, we, we share a lot, though you, I have to say, you expressed it um, really beautifully. Thank you for that. Uh, you're here um, about 15 years, and you and your wife established an organization called Life's Door. Um, t- tell us about Life's Door. You, 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 that, that's where you bring hope into your career, if I'm not mistaken. Um, how, do, how and why did you get into that, and, and what's the purpose of Life's Door? Right. So, uh, again, in response to the story that you allowed me to discuss uh, with my dad, uh, I really became in search of of meaning and tools to uh, create meaning and purpose uh, in our lives. These ideas, by the way, were percolating uh, around our heads. My wife is a uh, very successful family therapist, and we have a lot of common interests. And we thought about some of these sort of existential issues that uh, we confront in the human experience. In other words, one of the bonds that we all have is our mortality. Uh, No one is going to uh, get out uh, without departing the world through death. And that's a reality, which is part of the human experience. Given that reality, uh, I think one needs to not be depressed, but rather say, how can I maximize and potentiate uh, the blessing, the days that I do have on this earth? Um, so we were going to try and create an organization to uh, grapple with this when we were in the United States. And yet again, getting back to the miracle of Israel, uh, we didn't have that spark until we landed here. And then once we landed here, we said, you know what, let's just do it. Let's throw caution to the wind, uh, explore this additional aspect. The name Life's Door is actually a play on the Bob Dylan song. Uh, which some of your listeners might uh, know, Knocking on Heaven's Door. Yes. And I love the song, but I said, why are we knocking on Heaven's Door? Not that I'm against heaven, but why don't we knock on Life's Door? And why don't we see what we can do here? And uh, eventually, uh, we realized that there's a very common human virtue. I think it's the most human of virtues, and that is the issue of hope. I think it's even more human than love, by the way, because love, which is great, I'm all for love too, um, exists in the animal kingdom. There's really no analog in the animal kingdom for hope, because hope, as we'll discuss, um, implies an ability to think about the future and to plan for the future. And that's a very human dimension. Some people might say, well, what about bears hibernating? That's instinct. But to be able to um, a priori plan for things in the future that's very very human uniquely so beautiful uh and then in 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 my in my work as an oncologist and you bring up the issue of pancreatic cancer pancreatic cancer i don't have to tell you first of all it's in the news a lot because there's so many celebrities you know from alex trebek to aretha franklin who have uh died of pancreatic cancer it's you know, we almost joke uh, in cancer medicine that it's one of those diseases that give our profession a bad name because it really has been a riddle. We haven't been able to solve it. We've made incremental progress. Now, ironically, uh, although many of my colleagues give up on pancreatic cancer, I don't know what the experience was with your dad, but A, there are a lot of interesting experimental things you can do. But beyond that, uh, hope is not just about cure. And in the case of pancreatic cancer, when things can be so low, ironically, that's an opportunity, perhaps the greatest opportunity to introduce hopefulness because patient and family are so down. And so if we as healthcare professionals decide to invest, we can do so much for the lives of the patients and the people who care about him or her uh, who surround him. So how, so uh, I'm having a little PTSD going back 25 years as we talk about this. It is very personal. I remember something also you said um, in terms of the phone call your mother got when your father died. Um, I remember my father, he, the, the blessing is that he was diagnosed early because pancreatic cancer is one of those diseases that it's hard to diagnose. 
Um, and so he was diagnosed early and was able to attempt some treatments, but the, the cancer progressed. But I remember after he was um, having surgery, um, he was scheduled, I think, of four or five, six hours. I don't remember something long. And after about an hour, hour and a half, the surgeon came out um, and just simply walked into the waiting room and said, um, the, the tumor is in a place we can't operate. He's going to die in six months. Really that simple. And that I, I remember my physical reaction and, and there, and I felt like there was no hope. Even speaking to my rabbi, I didn't find it. How do you bring hope in to, to someone, uh, the loved one of somebody who's just right. gotten that diagnosis? Right. Well, first of all, that matter of factness on the part of the surgeon is unfortunately very commonplace. Um, there's a term in the literature called the curse of knowledge. Um, and part of the implication of that uh, phrase is that, you know, these surgeons, probably you saw an expert, what's known as a hepatobiliary surgeon, who does one or two of those long operations called Whipple procedure every yeah. week. Yeah. For him, it's almost not a a big deal. This is, you know, the way you might make pancakes in the morning. He can just do that. Um, and it, it becomes hard for them to realize that they have this very specialized uh, 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 wisdom that they've acquired. And then the question is, what do you do with that gift of wisdom? And how do you share it? And unfortunately, we don't think about that enough. Hope, as I said, should not be part of a mathematical cure get me wrong i want to cure every one of my patients and don't think that my patient should be deprived of hope so how can there be hope outside of the context of cure when we're speaking about a diagnosis of cancer can you hear me jonathan yeah, we were breaking up a little bit, but I hear you okay now. Okay, great. So uh, almost 30 years ago, there was a psychologist at the University of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas. His name was Rick Snyder. And he created this notion of hope theory. I call it the Torah of hope, if you will. And what he did was he had a sabbatical and he became Lost you a minute. He identified community leaders in Kansas, and he said, whether it was a pastor or a judge or a basketball coach, he said, you encounter so many people in your lives. Who are the people who are hopeful? I want to interview them. He also, by the way, interviewed the people who were hopeless, but we're not going to talk about that today. So he, 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 in, he identified these people, which he called hope heroes, the people who are just inspiring. And now you know those people, you have those people in your life. And most of us gravitate towards the more hopeful people. But he interviewed them. And by the way, this was before the technologies of artificial intelligence existed, where you can now take an essay that I might write and that you might write, and that uh, and a computer can tell us what are the common features in the way I look at the world, the way you look at the world. He did this all intuitively. Wow. And he saw that there were three features, what he effectively called three conditions for hope to thrive. And those three conditions are, drum roll, goals, pathways, and agency. Let me explain that very quickly. Goals. As I said, hope is future-oriented. And if you think about it, no matter what your definition of hopefulness is, and through our organization, Life's Door, we run workshops to try and enhance hopefulness. Uh, and the first thing we do is we have everybody in the workshop say how they define hope. Everybody is talking about some goal. It might be a goal for cure. It might be, though, another goal. It might be, in the case of a cancer patient, a goal not to have pain or shortness of breath. It might even be a goal. It might be a goal to have a good bowel movement. It might be a goal to have what's called a good death. But it might be non-medical as well. It might be that I have enough time and I want to pick up a hobby 
that I neglected to develop when I was a teenager, but I miss um, uh, what I, I miss uh, building uh, model ships or uh, creating 17th century French furniture. These are all examples of things we've heard in our workshops. That's why I'm able to throw out these bizarre uh, examples. <laughs> um, or it might be, and, and all of us have this statistically, the uh, phenomenon of the estranged relative. Everyone has a relative in their family for unclear reasons. They were once close with them and they no longer are. Maybe my goal is to reconnect with that relative. Um, maybe the goal is to deal with an internal problem I have, like jealousy or anger. So in the workshops, we identify goals. Now, the second feature I said is pathways. In other words, we need to create a route to reach the goals. Pathways is my favorite part of his theory because it connotes maturity. We know, since neither you nor I, Jonathan, were born yesterday, that it's very unusual in life to have a smooth path. On the road here right now in coastal Israel, there's some traffic jams that I'm encountering. Um, in the city of Brooklyn, where I was born, there are always potholes. Um, how do we deal with those obstacles? And what Snyder said is that the hopeful person finds a way to work around the obstacles, to troubleshoot the obstacles. And we do that in our workshops as well. And the third feature is once you have a goal and a pathway, you need to have agency. Agency is a sort of fancy word for drive, for motivation. It's like the Hollywood agent that will do anything for his client. That person has agency. So you put those three things together. You define a goal. Ideally, it's a goal that's plausible and a goal that's meaningful. Um, and you create a path to get there and you have to set out on that path. If you can fulfill those three dimensions, you're going to feel more hopeful, irrespective of how you might define hopefulness or how I might define hopefulness. There will be a feeling that blankets you, which you will identify as hope. Um, it's, it's incredible. It makes me think I want to be part of one of your uh, programs. But then again, if it's open for people who have... Um, terminal or other life-threatening issues, I probably don't want to be, though I suspect that um, since, as you said earlier, we all end up the same, we all end up dying. Um, and, I, and one thing, again, being very personal this week, um, learning from my father is I think I did learn how to die reasonably well, but, uh, but I think that there's always a lot to learn. So, I mean, that's, that's amazing. And I hope that people who who will who will find the need will reach out and will provide the will provide the contact information in the um, in the notes here. Um, tell me tell me though how does the ability to be hopeful cor correlate to one having faith? Is there is there a, is there a, my my intuition is that it would be much easier to be hopeful if you have faith, but and and conversely not if you don't. Right. Um, first of all, I'm just going to uh, use your uh, comment, your bridging comment as a springboard. Uh, we really now can uh, conduct these workshops. If there's been a blessing of COVID, and maybe later we can even speak uh, wow. for a moment about why, in a bizarre, ironic way, and please don't take it the wrong way, COVID has been very good for the hope movement because people have realized that hope is the secret sauce that's missing in their lives. Uh, for the past year and a half. We can speak about that later if we have time. Sure. But um, we also uh, realized that uh, we needed to be nimble and we transformed the workshops, which was an in-person experience to a virtual platform. So it's all done now uh, by Zoom, the way you and I are speaking. We have a really nifty app, uh, smartphone app called Hopetimize, which is uh, very, uh, as they say, gamified. It's a lot of fun to use. Um, we actually have the, the obstacles are sort of uh, crocodiles in a moat that uh, you're trying to uh, cross over in like a Renaissance castle. That's the way it's designed. <laughs> okay. but we, we can talk about that later. Um, 
but it's really something that's available. We've had several communities, we had a community in London reach out to us in January of this year saying they want to become a community of hope. Wow. And we had four weekly sessions with different uh, niches of that community. We had young marrieds, we had singles, uh, we had the elderly, very important for the elderly in COVID where loneliness is a problem and hope is one of the antidotes to loneliness. But let's get back to your question because I haven't forgotten it and it's an excellent question. Um, you remember in fourth grade, I don't know where you went to school, but I know it's part of the fourth grade curriculum in the United States. Uh, you learned about Venn diagrams, right? Those, those circles. Yep. And sometimes Absolutely. there was an overlap between circles and sometimes the circles were apart. So the Venn diagram that includes the circle of hope and the circle of faith almost has complete coincidence between the two because so much of what faith is about is hope. So much of what hope is about is faith. And there's no question that the religious person has, if you will, a leg up in trying to uh, rally around hopefulness at diff different times in his or her life. Prayer itself, and I'm sure you know this, in the Hebrew language, tefillah is actually a synonym for tikvah. Prayer and hope have overlap. And so that shouldn't be surprising to people. And I have, I'm currently working, as you heard, in the city of Ashdod and the city of Jerusalem. Before that, when I first came to, to Israel, the first clinical job I had was a position in Tel Aviv, which is the secular capital of the country. And I, I remember not infrequently patients and family members almost shaking me figuratively and saying that they were envious that I'm a person of faith. Mm because they realized there were so many advantages to having faith, especially when crisis uh, sets in, healthcare crisis and the like. And uh, I think even the secular individual realizes that there is tremendous value to faith. And by the way, one of the upsides, especially the way um, different religions are practiced in the United States, is the notion of a faith-based community. When you have this bonding, uh, of people who have this common thread between them, it really, I think, creates this dynamic, which is very, very special. And that's part of what I was talking to you about before with the notion of awe. And we're now creating what we call communities of hope so that through social media, uh, the people who've been in our workshops uh, can uh, maintain a connection that was established. And we'll, we'll even go from workshop to workshop all the while preserving confidentiality. So nobody has to expose exactly what it is they're working on unless they want to. Uh, but I think it's very empowering uh, to meet up with people who also are seeking hope and particularly in the context um, of a faith-based tradition. Sounds like it. Sounds, um, so, yeah, it sounds like there's definitely a leg up and that makes sense. And I'm glad I asked that. Um, tell me now, What's your experience with hope being curative? Uh, can you measure that? You said you said earlier, I don't remember in the context, maybe it was when you had your first position here or, 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 or in America, how you wanted to cure people. Can, are you able right. to do so with hope? Right. So that's a very interesting and very controversial question. Uh, I'm going to answer it. I will not skirt the question, but let me start by saying that, and, and re-emphasizing that cure is not my only goal. It is one of my goals, but um, it's kind of like when, uh, you know, my, my mother, Mishiris, would say to me, you know, why, why are you going into oncology? Uh, you can't cure so many of your patients. And I would have to explain to her that, you know, she would be like, why couldn't you be a cardiologist so I could brag to all the people I play bridge with? I said, well, if you, if you want to brag, you can, because um, I think there are other gratifying dimensions of the patient-physician relationship, which extend beyond cure, along the lines of what we talked about before. But let me get back to your question. We had access, there's a, there's a wonderful um, uh, professor of uh, nursing and what's called palliative care at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Her name is Mariba Kaitis. And um, she, about 20 years ago, developed something called Project Enable. It's an acronym. I don't remember what each letter stands for. I know the N is for nursing. 
but it's about using techniques. Oh, I'm going through a tunnel. I hope you don't lose me. Okay. Uh, it's about using techniques to make a person appreciate the quality of his or her life. And um, we noticed that, can you hear me, Jonathan? Yep, a little muffled, but Hello? we hear you. Okay, great. So we noticed that she was doing this for patients with advanced cancer. And what we noticed was in the questionnaires that she had circulated. Here's the study. There were three questions about hopefulness. So we sort of cobbled those questions together and we were able to define what we call a high hope personality and a low hope personality. When we compared high hopers versus low hopers, in other words, this is dispositional hope, your hope at baseline. Um, we actually saw a significant survival advantage. In other words, I could show you the curves, the survival curves, and the separation between the curves, what a distinct advantage it was in terms of survival from cancer to have a high hope personality versus a low hope personality, so much so that if hope was a drug, it would clearly be approved by the FDA because wow. the difference between those two curves was so great. Now, there are problems with that data. It's retrospective. In other words, there's a problem of confounding that maybe the high hope personality was a high hope personality because he or she has so many other advantages in life. Maybe they're uh, well off. Maybe they uh, have better habits in terms of not smoking, in terms of exercise, in terms of diet. So it's difficult to do that. And we're now doing this the study prospectively, not retrospectively. But here's the really interesting thing. That phenomenon relates to your baseline hope. My question is as follows. Is there what I call a hope phenotype? In other words, let's say you, Jonathan, and it doesn't sound like this is the case, but let's say you're a low hope personality. Can I take you into one of my workshops, give you uh -huh. a set of tools, because we're arguing that hope is a skill, and can I turn you into a high hope personality? And if I do that, I don't really care if there's something inherent about you or if because I made you more hopeful, you start to have better diet, you start to exercise, you start to have more sleep. The, the, the goal would still be achieved. You would have a better chance of fighting diseases, of battling with me. So this is why I think there's something very exciting there. We're beginning to test this right now, uh, especially with a, a group that's part of the National Cancer Institute called the SWOG. Um, which is another set of acronyms that we won't get into, even though I do know what that one stands for. It stands for Southwest Oncology Group. Um, but that's one of the interesting things, that it could be that more hopeful people have uh, you know, uh, longer lives, greater survival, and it's possible that that's a variable, that I can manipulate that in a positive sense with uh, teaching of these special tools. That's fascinating. That's... that's uh... It's, I guess, the difference, the difference perhaps between theoretical and applied hope. And in, in which case, then no matter whether one has a uh, terminal illness or a chronic disease or anything of that sort, hope is, uh, is something that, that will help all of us through, through life. Uh, and, and, as, and as you said, a, a very good reason for calling your organization Life Store, because um, there's so much that leads up to uh, what Bob Dylan wrote about uh, knocking on heaven's door. Um, tell us right. about the pla tell us about the platform. You alluded to it to it before. Hope demise and how and and how you've now got these uh, abilities to do the Zoom session. And I think everyone listening probably understands that in, in the sense of what you're talking about, COVID has been good for your expansion and 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 for people. And and you're you're applying more hope. But what is the platform about? Right. So let's get into that. So first of all, I love what the, the terms used before, because uh, they're in our literature as well. And you very intuitively talked about theoretical hope versus applied hope. I think that's exactly right. That that connotes an understanding of exactly what this discussion is about. That's the first thing. Second thing, just a, a point about COVID and why it's been just uh, a, a time that is ripe for hopefulness. Uh, I, I have the privilege now, even though I'm a physician, uh, of all of a sudden sort of walking on the wild side by um, interacting with uh, social scientists. 
in particular behavioral economists. And this is going to be oversimplified, but I'm going to very quickly uh, uh, throw some seeds down. There's sort of three reasons that behavioral, behavioral economists now think that um, hope uh, is very much on the radar of people, even though they might not call it hope. And they're as follows. First of all, uh, there's, a, there's a sense of helplessness that's out there. Um, there's, a, there's a famous series of experiments that were done at the University of Pennsylvania in the 1960s, um, where they, it sounds cruel, but uh, they, they learned by uh, following a group of dogs, some of whom, and they shocked them uh, after they got permission from an ethics committee to do this. And some, half the dogs had access to a lever, which would allow them to reduce the shock. And half the dogs did not have access to a lever. So the dogs that didn't have access to the lever basically said, it's futile, there's nothing I, I can do. And when they moved these dogs into what's called a shuttle box, that is this, this little box for them to play in. And there was a small partition which they could easily jump over if they wanted. And on one side, there was kind of a nonstop electrical shock, shock sensation. And on the other side, there was no electrical shock. So the dogs that had previously had access to the lever knew to just jump over the little oh, barrier wow. and find refuge. But the dogs that were convinced that there was nothing they could do had learned helplessness. And that's one of the things that's going on in our lives right now. Number two, aside from learned helplessness, is the issue of uncertainty. We live in a crazy time right now um, where uh, you know one of the finalists, both the Oxford Dictionary and the uh, Webster Dictionary, Word of the Year for 2020, uh, was, uh, was crazy. Oh, it's crazy, everybody says to you. How are you doing in these crazy times? Well, crazy is really code for uncertainty. And people don't like uncertainty. How do we know that? There was a famous experiment. This was published uh, in the journal Nature. And uh, in this experiment, they basically told people now, uh, volunteers, uh, I think they just got $500. So we're not going to feel too sorry for them when I tell you the story. <laughs> but they said, next Tuesday, to half the group, they said, next Tuesday at 9 a.m., you're going to get an electrical shock. And to half the group, uh, they said, next Tuesday at 9 a.m., you have a 50% chance of getting an electrical shock. So they then did uh, subjective tests of stress and physiologic tests of stress, which uh, the two most common ones are what's called skin conductance um, and uh, uh, pupil uh, dilatation, pupillary dilatation. That's not important. But there was significantly more stress among those who were uncertain about whether they would get the shock than those who were told they would get the shock. People don't like uncertainty. The same group had previously looked at women with biopsies for cervical cancer, and the stress levels were higher during the week when they didn't know whether they had cancer or not versus when they got the diagnosis. And that included those wow. who got a diagnosis of cancer. A woman who got a diagnosis of cancer was less stressed wow. than a woman who didn't know if she had cancer or didn't have cancer. We don't like uncertainty. So learned helplessness, uncertainty, uh, which both of those phenomena exist right now. And finally, something called, uh, it's called scarcity in the literature. What they did, it, it, one, there are many experiments with this, but the one I like best is, and this was published in the journal um, Science, so Science and Nature publishes these studies I'm talking to you about, the top journals. Um, and this is a group from Princeton. And they went over to India and they found um, 464, I happen to remember the number, of sugarcane farmers living in 54 villages throughout India. Now, it turns out in sugarcane farming, and I, I understand it's the phenomenon of farming in general, things are very cyclical. When you're post-harvest, everything is great. You have money in your bank account. You can provide for your family. Everything's fantastic. But when you're pre-harvest, okay, when you're pre-harvest, you have bills. Uh, they found that a lot of these people go to pawn shops. You have a lot of, a lot of uh, stresses. So what they did was they administered very simple math tests, okay? We talked about fourth grade level before. This might have been sixth grade level math tests to these Indian sugarcane farmers, uh, post-harvest and pre-harvest. And they found that the scores, this is now a person being compared to himself, to his own control. Um, the scores among those who were 
pre-harvest, when the stress was high and when they were impoverished, uh, were significantly lower than the scores on the math test for the same farmer post-harvest. And what they realized was that there's something called cognitive capacity. It's kind of like your internet bandwidth. And basically, when you have all of these stresses in your life, you have less cognitive bandwidth. Uh And that's kind of what's going on right now as well. We are stressed out, okay? And uncertainty is rampant. You, you know, we think here in Israel, we thought, oh, we were out of it. You know, we figured it out with masks or we figured it out with vaccines. No, we didn't figure it out. No, nope. none of us are certain about what's going to go on tomorrow. And this is a time that's ripe for hopefulness. And so that's why uh, all of a sudden, the last year and a half has spawned this interest. So getting to your question, which I haven't forgotten, <laughs> in the workshop, what we do on the virtual workshop is we use a process called hope mapping. Now, it used to be that this was a piece of paper that we used to give out. I called the people hope cartographers, people who draw maps. And you would literally sit down and we have a cute little way that I can't show you right now, but I can send it to you of drawing your goal. And you literally take a pencil and you draw your pathway. And then you go ahead and you figure out how I can get motivated to set on that pathway and what are the obstacles in the pathway. In the app, so the map has now switched to an app, if you will. And uh, the same uh, process exists, but as I said, it's, it's more gamified. It uses all sorts of drop-down menus because we've learned a lot now over the years that can sort of prod you. If you say, let's say, uh, you know, your goal is, uh, I mean, here we're post-New Year's in, in Israel. So just like in America, there are New Year's resolutions. Let's say my goal is to get in, in greater shape. So there'll be a drop-down menu that will say to you, um, maybe uh, what you could do is uh, you can join a health club um, or, you know, go on a diet. And, and you say, and, but, but then you also answer in the app, well, but I, you know, I can't afford that or I'm just not motivated. So there might be a solution that drops down, but maybe you should find a buddy and together you could do it. Whatever it might be. I'm using a very simplistic example right now. Um, but the app, kind of moves you through this process. Now we facilitate it uh, on the Zoom. And as you know, you have the feature in the Zoom of a, uh, of, a, of a little chat room. So we slot pairs of people, dyads into the chat rooms and they kind of help each other. And that in and of itself through the bonding experience is very reinforcing. So the process is, is, is really amazing. Last week, the week before the Jewish New Year, as you know, there's sort of a, uh, a tradition in this country of, uh, you know, sending little gift baskets to each other. So there's a society here of patients with brain tumors. And they decided instead of sending, uh, you know, a basket with wine and uh, with fruit and chocolate to the 50 or so people involved in the brain tumor society, they would give each of them a gift card to be involved in one of our workshops. Wow. So we conducted, we can, it was amazingly heartwarming. We conducted two workshops, uh, each with about 25 people. We've never done, we usually like have only about 15 people, but they insisted they wanted to, they, they had two dates they gave us and they want 25 people. So we said, okay, we'll give it a try. So Zoom actually is more scalable. You could do, you know, you don't have the, uh, the, the physical limitations you have in a room, uh, in a real room. So we did it with them. And it was patients and caregivers. And it was just remarkable what came out of it. I'll just give you one uh, example, one or two examples very quickly, just to show you how real world this is. So brain tumor patients have to be checked by neurologists to see if they can do something as fundamental as, you know, what I'm involved in right now, driving. Because we worry, are these people a hazard to the road? So one person uh, had as his goal to be able to uh, reclaim his driver's license. It was very important for his independence. And we talked about how, what he could do and you know, how he could get more OT, more occupational therapy to make him, even with his brain tumor, a candidate to drive again. There was another patient with the same goal, but uh, he had a more advanced tumor. And it was clear that that really couldn't uh, be a plausible goal for him. So what did the very clever facilitator do? The clever facilitator said, you know what? Let's use driving as a metaphor in your life. What are some other things that you could drive forward? Because what she understood, this brilliant, brilliant woman, was that 
um, it was about control for him. He wanted driving for him wow. was really a, a proxy for control. So she said, what can we do to restore control in your life? And that, that's what they did there. And then one more example, there was an, an interesting interaction in one of these dyads uh, between two women who were slotted into the same chat room together. And then after the chat room, they spend 10 minutes in the chat room and then they come back into the general session. And, and without pressure, whoever's not shy likes to share what was going on. So this dyad shared, they both said they wanted, they had brain tumors, they wanted to become better mothers. So they just built up this frenzy of brainstorming. And one of them said, um, the way I'm gonna become a better mother is by blowing soap bubbles with my kids every day. Beautiful. I'm just gonna do something silly and blow soap bubbles. And then the other one said, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna tickle my kids every day. <laughs> and that's gonna make me feel more engaged. And that's, that's just a little slice of what goes on in these workshops and how they're fun, they're not off-putting, and they're very bonding. Um, and and it, it really is um, a gift, um, uh, just like the society uh, bestowed upon their, uh, their organizational members. Giving someone hope is a gift. I can tell you, when we train our staff or when I train colleagues, other oncologists, because I have workshops for them too, the most common comment I get the, the day following the workshop is the following. After the workshop, I went home, I summoned my family members, and I did the workshop with them because I wanted to be in touch with their goals. And they all say how there were things they didn't realize about what was on the radar for their spouses or for their kids. And it's, it's just such a wonderful experience to be able to bring that. You could do it with your friend, you know, at coffee next Wednesday. It's, it, it sounds a little hokey. I, I understand that. <laughs> but once you get beyond the hokiness, and that's a lot of what we're workshops to try and make sure that just have this phenomenal that you could. Are you still there? I am. Oh, good. Okay, fine. I lost you. I thought I lost you for a minute. Yeah, no, I <laughs> uh, believe it or not, I, I every so often I do shut up, even though my, my kids are. <laughs> so I have a, a question I didn't even think about asking. Does insurance cover any of what you're doing the, for hope? We're trying to uh, have, as you know, in Israel, uh, this kind of a, these uh, national HMOs, there are four of them. And we're trying to get them to cover it. And one of them, I think, is going to right. Uh, you'd be surprised. Uh, th these workshops really don't cost that much. Um, they're designed that way. Because uh, they're subsidized, we've gotten some grants from different yeah. foundations that have helped us. So th there, there should not be an economic barrier. If any of your listeners are interested in it, please, please reach out Absolutely. to us. And we'll find a way. And, and I'm thrilled to facilitate that. Um, let me wrap up with just a couple of questions. You, you, you've um, alluded to a lot of things that are relevant here, Israeli culture, Jewish life. What's, what's unique about your work being specifically here in Israel? You mentioned that when you and your wife came to Israel, you said, throw caution, you, throw caution to the wind and let's just do it. And, and here you are couple of decades later, what, our, our program is called Inspiration from Zion. What, what is this, what's the magic, special sauce about it being in Israel from Israel? Okay, so also a great question. I have thought about that. The first is the idea of this willingness to do something a little off the beaten path. Bear with us. I don't know if you're hearing me. Dr. Yeah, okay. With you and your listeners for a second. Yep, we're going. Literally, the hope. It means the hope. One of the goals that we talk about is the goal of legacy. In other words, sometimes somebody in our workshop says, you know what? I'm okay. I know that my days are numbered, um, but I'm feeling fine. I want to give something to my children or to my grandchildren. And we help them think about that. Oh, beautiful. With the goal of legacy, if you think about uh, the Jewish people, um, the, the national anthem talks about a hope that lasted 2,000 years. So think about that. There were these up over the years. And I'll bet you that Theodor Herzl, at the end of the 19th century, did not really think that he was going to himself experience 
a Jewish state as we know it right now. He was a dreamer. But I bet if he did a hope scale on Theodor Herzl, it would be off the charts. Yeah. Because he was able to, to think about a goal and a pathway. And even if it wasn't for him, it was going to be for his children and his grandchildren. Wow. Wow. And that in and of itself can create hopefulness to you. So that even if you have a horrible disease, like a pancreatic cancer, I'll bet your father had many wishes for you. And if you have siblings, um, and I'll bet that if he was able to envision some of those coming to fruition, that that made him feel comforted and more hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. That, 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 that's amazing. And I love how you tied it into our anthem and, and the, the history of the Jewish people. So, so, so now let's talk. <laughs> it's, I, I have about two more minutes because I'm pulling in right now. Great. So I've got one, one more question um, that came to mind. Now you've talked about the history. What about the future of the Jewish people? You've worked with Israeli Bedouin Arabs and Palestinian Arabs and, of course, Israeli Jews. How, not, outside of your medical expertise, what's the correlation between hope and peace here? Uh, it's remarkable. It's very intuitive because, um, as I said, we're speaking about a very human dimension. And to me, it doesn't matter if you're a Bedouin in the South or Druze in the North uh, or a Palestinian in Gaza. Uh, you need hope. And this is the great equalizer. Uh, Lee Iacocca, the legendary uh, CEO of Chrysler, who restored uh, that American automotive giant, said the great equalizer was the uh, the car, because no matter what your income was, you could scrape together the money or get a loan, and it could look like you know things were very good in your life because uh, you were driving uh, you know a high-end vehicle. I actually think hope is the great equalizer, because we all need it. And uh, the reception that we've received from uh, really uh, these other, if you will, cousins, children of Abraham, has been remarkable, has been extremely warm uh, because we're, we're in this together. And uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful bridge. Amazing. Um, we, you know, we had some technical issues cl- uh, clicking out, which is always ironic to me because we are in the startup nation. Um, but it reminds me of a, one of the first podcasts we did um, some time ago. We did it from a 3,000-year-old archaeological site. Uh-huh. And and the the reception there wasn't so great, but uh, but I think and I'm, I'm, I'm I hope uh, that sincerely that that people have been in, in finding this meaningful. Um, Dr. Ben Korn, I'm really thrilled and grateful for you taking the time you did today with us, um, sharing this message, sharing this this hopeful, inspiring, and um, really life important. I'm grateful for that. Uh, let me just also. Before I let you go, thank um, our sponsors, um, the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia, and, uh, and also the Coyne family, um, both of which have made really generous uh, donations to make sure that we are able to launch the Inspiration from Zion program. Um, all of our programs are made possible by, by donations. And therefore, as I mentioned at the outset, we have sponsorship of individual programs, where people can uh, honor a loved one, memorialize uh, memorialize a loved one like my father who died 25 years ago this week, um, or just celebrate something together. And we always are inviting people to share those occasions and be connected with us uh, to be in touch at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. And lastly, that we want to hear comments and questions and specifically questions about Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi program. So we invite people to uh, to be in touch with us on that and to share this, share this. I think that this is one of the programs that will find the greatest reach. So please, as you're listening, consider who needs to hear this program. And despite the technical difficulties, I'm very confident that uh, that this will reach a wide audience of people who need the, the message. Um, wherever you are in the world, um, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings here from the Judean mountains. Dr. Korn, thank you for joining us. God bless you and God bless your family and all of our listeners. Thank you very much and Happy New Year. You too. Bye.